the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. And uh, this is early May 2021. And if you think back quickly, 51 years to May 4th, 1970, we think of Kent State. I was at Kent State at the time, and that tells you how old I am. Uh, For anyone who was at least 19 years old, at that time is now 70 years old and uh, hopefully going strong. But uh, a lot has happened between 1970 and 2021. And uh, at Kent State, uh, we're going to be talking to uh, Neil Cooper. Neil is the director of the uh, School for Peace and Conflict Studies at Kent State. Neil, thank you for joining us. Tell us a little bit about the School of Peace and Conflict, and, and how do its origins tie into the May 4th shootings? So, actually, uh, the school is uh, celebrating its 50th, 50th anniversary this year, uh, and that's because the, the school's predecessor, the uh, Center for Peaceful Change, was actually established by the university 50 years ago this year um, uh, as an attempt to get something positive uh, uh, out of the events of, of Maythorpe. Uh, it was conceived at the time uh, as a quote-unquote living memorial to the events of Maythorpe 1970, and it was um, given a mission to promote peaceful change uh, and learning through experience. And, and we try to live up to that mission and, and abide by that mission today. The name may have changed, but the commitment to that mission uh, remains central to the work of the school. Um, I I recall going back to May 4th, 1970, the uh, war protest, the National Guard on campus, and uh, the idea of having riot control National Guard's people was sort of a novel idea because there was not much training in how to handle large crowds or even to determine what was the harm in having a large crowd? That wasn't destroying things. Uh, and uh, so af- after Kent State, after the shootings, and, and after uh, things were, were set up at Kent State for, to promote peaceful change, the the thought is, what has anything been actually accomplished in you know, teaching us with a body of academic knowledge or theories how to avoid violence and to allow peaceful change to occur, which I think is part of what the purpose is. Is that right? Uh, that's our aim. Um, so we work uh, both locally and internationally. So I have uh, one colleague, for instance, uh, is working lo- locally and involved in a uh, uh, local uh, Jewish-Muslim dialogue. I have other colleagues who work in uh, Colombia, who've worked in Nigeria and Pakistan, um, who work on issues of relationships between Taiwan and China, and so on and so forth. 
so there's a i think uh, as a as a group um we are actively involved in trying to translate academic research into practical engagement on the ground both locally and ar- and around the world and so those those impact not just our own work but but the work of, of peace activists and uh, mediators and, and conflict resolution practitioners around the world are, are often kind of making uh, micro changes capillary changes if you like that that mm. may go on notice below the the big headline um, so I think that's one one important takeaway there's a lot of work a lot of progress that goes on in, in resolving you know, we've learned a lot in terms of conflict resolution around local community disputes, work within uh, organizations, and right through to the uh, practices of uh, international peacekeeping forces dealing with, with post-conflict settings. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of that goes unreported. We, we focus very much on the, on the daily, uh, you know, kind of headlines of, of violence and gun shooting and problems and, and, and um, you know, both here in the U.S. and, and further abroad. But underneath those, those headlines, I think that there has been a kind of, you know, there are notable successes that we can celebrate. And beyond that as well, uh, I would say that, you know, I, I think there is a, a tendency to, to adopt a, a kind of resigned, uh, defeatist attitude to the challenge of, of, of bringing about positive political change right? and, and, and progress and, and, and progress towards peace. Because again, I think we focus on the on those daily daily headlines that suggest to us that nothing changes, and I and I, and I call this the kind of you know miserableist account of, of, of history. But nothing changes, so there's no point in trying to change anything. And, and you know we m- might as well all just stay in our beds and and cover our heads with a blanket and hope the world goes away. Um, but if you think about it historically, there are the, there are there are certainly significant problems and challenges that remain today and I'm very happy to talk to them and, and I think there are some very scary scenarios uh, for the future of peace and security and I'm very happy to talk about those. But historically, you know, there are areas where we've seen significant progress. If you look, you know, if you were standing in the rubble of Berlin after the end of the Second World War, the Second World War in particular, that, you know, I don't think anybody would have given great odds for the idea that Western Europe would become a play, a region where the idea that the states no longer go to war with each other is simply just taken for granted. Similarly, if you look at the you know relations between the U.S. and Canada, if you go back far enough, uh, you know the great the Great Lakes were an, a, a militarized area, and it took a, a, an early 19th century arms control agreement to actually demilitarize the Great Lakes. Now, nobody thinks about the U.S. and Canada uh, going to war. It's not to say that the U.S. and Canada and the Europeans don't have issues and disputes between themselves, but they now, you know, it's taken for granted that those will get settled uh, in the conference room and, and not on a, on a battlefield. Likewise, you know, we, life expectancy rates have massively increased historically. Uh, slavery's been abolished, hom- even homicide rates. Is, I, you know, this may seem counterintuitive to your listeners because we get this daily 
drip, drip of news about the kind of you know latest homicides, all of which are, are, are awful. And there is clearly still much more work to be done on this issue. But if you look historically over the centuries, homicide rates have plunged since the Middle Ages. Um, and even deaths from war have fallen. And that's partly because one of the things that we've seen since the end of the Second World War is really the end of a uh, of major war, direct major war between the major powers. And we know that one of the things that, that major industrialized powers are really good at is finding really effective ways to engage in mass killing. Uh, so, you know, those are just some of the kind of lists of, of points of progress that we've made, right, to, to a better society, a better life, and even points of progress in terms of peace. As I said, I, there is a, it's a mixed picture out there, and, and, I, and there are also the whole series of, 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 of issues and, and trends that are very worrying. And I think the other point that is worth making is that I, I think we are at one of those historical inflection points where, where some of the progress, particularly uh, post-Cold War that we experienced in peace and conflict trends, may potentially be at risk of, 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 of kind of going the other way. You know, as we talk about the evolution of international relations from World War II forward, we're not going to have major powers likely to be engaged in things other than uh, conference room discussions and resolving individual di- uh, differences. The, uh, the advent uh, of terrorism as a, a cheap alternative, a cheap way of delivering violence, yeah. how has that come into play? Well, I, I don't think terrorism necessarily is a, is a novel phenomenon. It's, it's not a novel phenomenon of the, of the post-Cold War era. Terrorism has always been with us in, in different forms and in, and in different contexts. One of the things I would note is that I, I don't, I, what I was talking about in terms of the absence of war between the major powers is, is that I think that's a historical uh, event that we've seen since the end of the Second World War. I don't think that that's necessarily guaranteed going forward. In terms of terrorism, I mean, if you look at the likes of Al-Qaeda and ISIS, um, I mean, in one, there are lots of kind of, you know, there's never one single explanation for the rise of any uh, phenomenon. They're all always kind of multifactorial uh, explanations. But I think um, in part, you know, you can look at ISIS and Al-Qaeda and, and actually the fact that those kind of actors are revo- resorting to terrorism is in part a kind of reflection of their weakness. And, uh, if, if they were stronger actors, if they were, uh, um, you know, state-like actors, then uh, they would be de- deploying other, other means of violence and other means of force. So I don't want to uh, diminish um, the threat from those groups, and I certainly don't want to minim- diminish the consequences of events like 9 9-11. Uh, but, you know, compared with the kind of military force that major states like the, the U.S. or China or, or Russia can, can deploy, these are relatively weak forces. Let's sort of hold that thought. We're going to take a short break. We're, we're talking to Mr. Uh, Neil Cooper, who is the director of Kent State School of Peace and Conflict Studies, uh, in this recognizing May 4th, 1970s, 51st anniversary coming up this May 4th. Uh, we'll take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate on WHK. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Can't get no sense. 
Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking to Mr. Neil Cooper from Kent State University. He's the director of the Kent State University School of Peace and Conflict Studies. And uh, we're talking to him about conflict since the days of May 4th, 1970, when we had the shootings at Kent State. Uh, Mr. Cooper, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, We're talking about... uh, the idea of post-World War II and resolving conflicts without war. Uh, how are we doing now? Are there any trends that have been recognized and any concerns we have? So, um, as I was saying before, I think that the good news is that we can identify a number of historical trends that, that, that have gone in the right direction. You know, the, the, the long-term decline in homicide rate, life expectancy increases, standards of living increases, all these kind of things. Um, and even some positive trends on, on, on war, interstate warfare, for instance, war between states uh, has been in de- decline for since, you know, the sort of like mid-20th century. But uh, I do think at the same time that we are now has a kind of historical inflection point. Um, where we be, we're beginning to see certain kinds of trends in the international system that are worrying. Um, so if you look um, in 2019, for instance, um, well, whilst interstate conflicts, conflicts between states and particularly conflicts between major powers, uh, I mean, the conflicts between major powers have, have not ha- occurred since World War II, effectively. But, but if you look at all kinds of conflicts, uh, including intrastate conflicts, civil conflicts, internationalized civil conflicts, <clears throat> in 2019, these reached the highest recorded rate uh, in the post-1946 uh, period, driven in part by a, a surge in conflict in Africa, which also recorded um, uh, the highest number of conflicts in the post-1946 period. Uh, from 2011 to 2019, the number of riots around the world rose by something like 282%. And perhaps most worryingly uh, at all, uh, we've seen really significant in- increases in both global military expenditure and the global arms trade. So between 1998 and 2019, so over over the period of about 20 years, Global military expenditure has risen over 80% in real terms. Uh, and I think these are really concerning trends. And in particular, I mentioned that I think one of the positives that we've seen since the end of World War II is really the end of, of, of major war between major military industrial powers. And the concern is that this sort of growing accumulation of arms and weapons around the world uh, and the kind of heightened tensions that we now see in, in a in a new multipolar world that that the you know uh, may if these if these trends continue the concern is that that you know uh, about the risk of the eruption of a major war uh, because since the end of certainly since the end of the Cold War uh, Western states have have essentially fought you know wars of choice. Uh, not existential wars of survival, where the survival of the nation state was was at stake. So, you know, Afghanistan uh, and Iraq uh, and Libya and all those kind of conflicts, uh, challenging as they they may have been, 
they were still wars of choice. They were still wars overseas. And, and you know, the integrity of the, of the American state was never uh, at stake. And, I, and, and, and so the debate about those wars, I think, is very different than uh, it, it is over uh, existential wars. And I, but I do worry that we've almost come to accept that that's the natural state of war, that wars only happen out there overseas uh, in the context of wars of choice against relatively weak opponents. Uh, you know, I, 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 I see, as you're explaining this, um, talking about war, where we talk about war between major powers, yeah, that yeah. that would be something that is extremely rare. We don't see, uh, other than maybe the, the border between Pakistan and India, which always seems yeah. to be a tinderbox. Um, yeah. But what we see now with regard to violence, uh, official government violence, is governments uh, taking arms against civilian populations who are protesting. Yeah. And and within the civilian populations that are protesting, there seems to be a division where you have maybe a large majority of the protesters are nonviolent, but you have an element of those protesters that are keyed in and prepared for and find usefulness in being violent, which escalates things. Now, similar to like a virus, if like in India now with the coronavirus spreading, uh, still, if we have a lot of civil disruption going on, a lot of violence, uh, th- does that lead us into a situation where we might be looking at wider conflicts coming out of these uh, these countries? I'm thinking of like Miramar, for example. Um, how, how dangerous I, I, is that? So, I I I think it depends on on the context and the particular. Aspect particularities of the particular conflict that you're, you're looking at and you're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. I think some conflicts uh, are, are, are containable within a country or even within a, uh, a particular uh, region of the country. One of the other reasons why we've seen sort of, you know, declines in, in mortality rates from war, for instance, is, is that a lot of civil wars don't actually um, encompass the whole of the country. They may be kind of located just in, a, in another, you know, one bit of the country and other bits of the country are actually doing quite well and, and generate and, and, and benefiting from improvements in healthcare and stuff like that. So you often get the odd uh, statistical anomaly whereby there's a kind of civil conflict going on in one bit of the country, but, but overall it can be that, that actually life expectancy rates, for instance, may be going up overall. Um, so... It, I, it depends on the on the situation, on the context. Clearly, we've seen in Iraq and Syria the way that that certain kinds of conflicts can easily become internationalized. Um, you know, and and that that kind of conflict is now becoming a not uncommon feature of the of the international system, particularly in a in a multipolar world where you've got different you know major powers. With different, with different interests uh, and different alliances in different regions of the world kind of getting involved mm-hmm, is what we saw mm-hmm. precisely in Syria. Well, you, you mentioned alliances, and what, what comes to mind are mutual defense treaties. Are, are they a thing of the past? Um, because of commitments no. in those international treaties, uh, you could be forced into an international conflict uh, amongst a number of international powers. 
Yeah, um, I, I certainly don't think they're a, a thing of the past. If you look at the debates, there's a, um, uh, a NATO summit meeting that, that's going to occur over the summer, and I suspect that, that the Biden administration will reiterate, you know, America's commitment to NATO and the importance and, and centrality of, of NATO uh, to U.S. Uh, security planning. So I think that, that those, those broader alliance relationships will certainly be uh, a feature of the international system going forward. But I think as well, you know, those, those different kinds of alliance relationships also create their own sets of security dynamics. So if you look, you know, I mean, if you look at NATO, for instance, collectively, NATO states, themselves account for about over over half, over 50% of global military expenditure, um, whereas the Russians account for about, you know, 3.4% uh, of global military expenditure and the Chinese about 14%. So I think one of the things we need to do when we look at our alliance arrangements is think about the importance of those relationships and the common values and principles that on, on, underpin them. Right? And that's the one of the key things with the NATO uh, alliance in particular, it's not underpinned by a, a, a particular set of political values uh, and, and principles that have been there uh, right from the inception of NATO. But at the, on the other side of the scale, it's also important that when we are talking about the potential threat from countries like Russia and China, we also have to take into account how those kind of alliance arrangements look from Beijing and, and from Moscow. It's only by being able to put ourselves in the shoes of others and to see how our own uh, defensive actions, what we see as defensive actions, how they might actually be perceived by others. And if we can do that, then that helps us to actually take effective measures to limit international tension very, oh, very, very, to limit very, very, very for the next year well, or, or, or like, like to thank you Mr. Neil Cooper from Kent State University and the School of Peace and Conflict Studies thank you for your work and hopefully the trends of more peace will continue to grow so thank, thank you, you uh, for joining us thank you and uh, we'll be right back we're going to take a short break don't go away you're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK The Advocate we'll be right back segment of The Advocate. In the next two segments, we're going to be talking to Tim Fowler from the Cuyahoga County Fair Board and talk about what's been happening over these last two years. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Well, you're welcome, Nick. It's always a pleasure and uh, honor to be on your show. Well, it's an honor having you with us because the Cuyahoga County Fair and the Cuyahoga County Fairgrounds is an important part of our lives for those of us who have been living here in Cleveland all these years. Um, you're the past president of the Fair Board. How long and how many years have you been uh, president of that board? I was president for uh, eight years. And what's your role now? Well, currently uh, I'm uh, in charge of media and advertising. I'm in charge, uh, or not actually working with the safety committee for uh, security and fire protection. And also uh, have an animal responsibility this year of the swine exhibit. Well, for most of those eight years, 
we have been uh, talking to you just before the fair starts in, in July. The fair would normally start in early August. Uh, but with 2020 and the COVID, uh, we really missed a, a lot. Uh, with regard to the uh, the county fair, we, we didn't have one last year, did we? No, we didn't, Nick. Uh, we had a very emotional decision to make last year about this time. And we were heading into the uh, unknowns of the pandemic. Uh, we were one of the first fair boards in the state of Ohio to take a due diligence, uh, proactive approach and cancel the fair. Uh, after that, uh, other fair boards took on that same obligation. And uh, last year, the only fairs that were really allowed were junior fairs at a county fairgrounds. Those fairs, uh, those junior fairs uh, required all the social distancing, and they were usually a one-day event. So that the 4-H and junior fair uh, exhibits and kids that have been working for a full year in those projects were able to fulfill their and complete their projects and in some cases compete uh, at either a higher level for uh, more uh, achievement awards and in some cases monetary awards through livestock auctions. I see, I see. Uh, now for people who don't know about the fairgrounds, where are they located and who owns the fairgrounds? <laughs> Actually, the fairgrounds are located in Berea, uh, Ohio. Uh, it consists of about 121 plus or minus acres. Um, it's been uh, out in Berea for, uh, you know, 60-some years. It's not the same location as it originally started. But uh, we are a part of the land-grant state, and the requirements of a land-grant state are that you conduct an annual fair. The grounds are owned by Cahaga County. Uh, it's a uh, public property. Uh, it is operated and managed by the Cahaga County Agricultural Society. Again, a uh, traditional uh, role for land-grant uh, states. Well, when you say land-grant, what, what does that mean? I haven't heard that term in a long time. Well, <laughs> It goes back to our uh, probably eighth grade uh, Ohio history class. but uh, I think so, two years ago. <laughs> yeah, you're really testing me, Nick. But really, uh, my, uh, my recollection is that when the territories were, were set up by the forefathers, you know, land grant made certain obligations to continue certain environment uh, situations, such as uh, agricultural uh, and uh, the early development of possibly some of our universities. Ohio State is a land-grant university, uh, so it included providing educational and future opportunities for anybody that lived within that state. Uh, that's in existence uh, ever since the founding of Ohio and the development of our country. Um, I, I don't see any signs of it ever changing or maybe even what it would change to. Well, that certainly goes back into our history, and it's it's still there. I know that as stewards of the fairgrounds, the uh, the board uh, is responsible for everything that goes on there. So, beside the county fair, what all activities go on over at the fairgrounds? You know, in Cuyahoga County, uh, our mission is to educate people about agriculture, both in the past and in the future, and present and future. 
Um, beyond that, though, we have a, a ground that is integrated with buildings and a lot of open spaces, and we do a numerous amount of rentals. Uh, we have a lot of shows during the year. Uh, for example, uh, other service groups will use our fairgrounds for, like, the Chili Open in the middle of February for a fundraiser. Uh, we also have, uh, you know, an annual uh, and uh, a weekly flea market for three-quarters of the year. It's indoor uh, during the winters, one day, of, one weekend a month, and we do it every Saturday and Sunday throughout the spring and summer on the fairgrounds. Uh, in addition to that, we have numerous companies and organizations that rent our fairgrounds for uh, trade shows, uh, lumber auctions. Uh, we even have uh, RV shows that have moved to an exterior locations. Um, we have uh, partnered with the Scottish Games, uh, Rib Fest, just a number of things in the, in the community. And uh, our grounds is centrally located right near 480. Uh, the Turnpike, uh, I-71, part of it is in Middleburg Heights, and the majority of it is in the city of Berea. You know, during uh, this past winter, especially in January, February, and March, uh, the COVID vaccination centers were being operated there. Tell us about that. Yeah, we were fortunate to do two things COVID-related to the public. One of them was the vaccine center, and we were in operation for approximately six weeks because we had ample parking and we had buildings that you could drive through. And we were one of the first clinics, major clinics, set up in the, in the city or in the county. Uh, since then, it has moved to Tri-C West. And, of course, the Wolstein Center is uh, the predominant uh, location uh, in our county. Uh, you know, secondly, we were able to fulfill a need for people to pick up food. We worked with the Department of Agriculture, and they provided us a product in one day a month for uh, five weeks, I believe. We provided free food for anybody that participated, wanted to come in, no questions asked. And we really uh, were able to distribute uh, thousands of pounds of food uh, to a lot of people that were really stretching their dollars and in drastic need uh, during the pandemic. Uh, we were grateful to be partners in both the county and with the U.S. Department of Agriculture in both those regards. Now, the uh, the fair board, are they uh, independent of the county government, or does the county government uh, sort of guide and direct what you do, or is it totally up to you, you're the board, to decide what to do with regard to leasing and uh, allowing activities to occur on the fairgrounds? That's true. Well, we are our own entity uh, with the parent being the Cuyahoga County Council. So when there's a need on their part, they can reach out to us, uh, vice versa. Uh, we basically uh, receive uh, about $3,300 a year from the county, which is part of that land grant requirement again. It's a few dollars more than what the state requests them to give us. But other than that, we fulfill our own uh, fundraising in dollars and expenditures for approximately uh, one and uh, three-quarters million dollar budget a year. So that money is all coming in through rentals and other activities? It certainly comes from uh, the rentals. On top of it, it comes from our, our fair uh, that we hold in August of every year. Uh, it also uh, it, uh, comes from 
Um, this past year, we were able to receive some funds from the state of Ohio that were given to all fairs. Uh, we uh, were able to participate through the processes of the federal government and some of the PP money that was available. So it, it majority in the normal period of time comes from the fair and from our rental and ground usage uh, items. I see. I see. Well, 2020 was such a bust for everybody, for everything, including the fair. Uh, we're, we're glad to see we all made it to 2021. We're uh, going to come back. We're talking to Tim Fowler, past president of the Cuyahoga County Fair Board, talking about the Cuyahoga County Fairgrounds and what has happened to the fair since last year. And we're going to talk to him about what's going to happen this coming year uh, with the fair and get the uh, up-to-the-minute news on that. So don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate. We're talking to Tim Fowler. We're going to be right back after these words. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland, for our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. You're listening to Nick Phillips. And with me tonight, we have Tim Fowler, who is the past president of the Cuyahoga County Fair Board. And we're talking to the Cuyahoga County Fair past president about what's going on with the fair. Tim, thank you for joining us. You're welcome, Nick. Always great to be with you. You know, I, I can't help but think, and I think a lot of people feel this way, that the worst of the pandemic is over and things are opening up. With regard to the Cuyahoga County Fair this coming summertime, how, how are we looking? What's going to happen? Well, fortunately, we're glad to announce that we're going to have a full uh, 100% fair. So we'll have six days of the activities and exhibits and what have you that people have uh, trusted us to uh, produce over the uh, the last uh, hundred years. Um, in that regard, though, we are taking every step to provide a safe fair, not only from safety forces, but also from the COVID. Um, we are going to streamline and have a one price fee or ticket to get in. We're going to promote and push on sales ticketing. Um, we're going to have um, traffic uh, controlled as far as pedestrian traffic to try to maintain distances in the uh, midway and in our buildings. Our exhibitors will be stretched out in the buildings so there's more space between them. Uh, we're going to uh, bring more um, on-site entertainment. We won't have a grandstand entertainment this year. We won't have our famed demolition derby, uh, some of those things that people look forward to because of the seating arrangements and so forth. But we're going to have a lot of walking entertainment, a lot of pavilion entertainment, things that people can be, you know, really spread out. On the same token, we'll, we'll be spreading out our uh, food vendors. We think we'll have a few less food vendors than what we normally have just so we can socially distance them. They have promised, and we will be on top and coordinate with the county health board for cleanliness of their counter spaces and, and those type of things. So we're really excited that we're going to be able to do it as close to normal as possible. We've got a great brand new ride company coming in, uh, never been in our fairgrounds, coming in from Florida. Um, prime Time Amusements was scheduled for last year. Uh, they have a two-year contract with us. They're excited to come into Cleveland area. Uh, we'll have spectacular rides, three or four 
we may have double Ferris wheels this year if we can uh, really uh, coordinate that uh, with the uh, sanitation and what have you. But we, we have a lot of things that we're going to really bring on that we feel are going to be uh, a great new uh, event and make up for what we couldn't provide last year. Do, do we have dates uh, selected yet? Yes, it's the second weekend, our second week in uh, August. So uh, that I think starts on the tenth uh, and goes through the fifteenth. It's Tuesday through Sunday. Uh, we'll officially open up uh, on Tuesday uh, midday and go through Sunday at ten p.m. And we're going to have sultry, hot August weather, I assume. We hope so. Uh, you know, we uh, wouldn't be a fair without. Uh, the threat of rain or hot, sultry weather. So we, we hope we get both only at the right times. I gotcha. Now, I, I know that uh, the fairs have a state fair association, and you coordinate with the other county fairs. Uh, how, how is that coordination going on in this post-pandemic uh, time frame? Well, we're members, and what you're referring to is the uh, OFMA, the Ohio Fair Managers Association, they have been great advocates over the last year working with the governor's office to not only provide the junior fairs that we had last year, but also to get fairs opened up. And so uh, there's been continued dialogue. Uh, we're part of District 9, which is made up of uh, nine different counties uh, from Ashtabula down to Trumbull and uh, over here to Cuyahoga. So we not only meet with them on a quarterly basis, but then we have uh, dialogue with the state uh, at the state level from a convention. Uh, they've introduced uh, weekly sessions, so we have Zoom uh, 10 o'clock on Tuesdays on various subjects to uh, you know conduct the fair this year and be safe and positive within uh, our fair community. Now, now, what's the traditional elements of the fair besides the rides and the food? I know everyone brings out their animals. Uh, are we still going to have a lot of animals out there and are there, there are people now, and I just picture the animals being raised and cared for by uh, young people who are members of groups like the 4-H and stuff. Are these people and groups still very active? They are very active. You know, in Cuyahoga County, it's a little bit strange. Uh, we have one of the largest populations of 4-H uh, members in the state of Ohio, believe it or not. But on wow. the animal side, it's one of the smallest. So, you know, in rural counties where there's a huge population of uh, animal projects, uh, we get a lot of projects that are more educational, more hands-on. It, it can be everything from baking to, uh, you know, uh, sewing, but uh, not tying, small engine repairs, just a, a number of those type of events. But 4-H is uh, big in Cuyahoga County with over 4,000 members. Um, we have a... Um, OSU, Ohio State University Extension uh, agent named Robin Stone that spearheaded the 4-H that took it over about three years ago. Uh, they're uh, doing some marvelous things. They're putting in a, a heritage historic garden in the fairgrounds uh, this, this year that'll be growing not only vegetables this year, but expanding in size every year for the next three or four years. The 4-H just received an award for what they did last year for their junior fair, which was 4-H in a box. 
And uh, we're proud to say that uh, they received this award out of all the other uh, 4-H entities uh, in the state and parts of the country. So they're pretty dynamic. We're proud of them. Well, that's good because it's a name of a group we don't often hear of, uh, except for when it's mentioned in conjunction with the fair. Uh, Going back to COVID for a bit, uh, I know when the inoculations were being given at the fairgrounds, I definitely had the impression that this uh, was almost a government facility at the time. Has the fairgrounds or have the fairgrounds been used for other government-type emergency things before? It is set up within the county as a uh, strategic location for those needs if and when needed. So, in other words, if uh, National Guard needed a place to headquarter for some need in the county, the fairgrounds would be used for that. The fairgrounds also participates in the county disaster program so that if there's a disaster, there's uh, buildings that are needed, or let's say that there was even a as simple as a, a place that animals had to be housed, they could bring them to the, the county fairgrounds. So we're ready and willing. We fortunately haven't had to stage those. Uh, there's been some situations where uh, utility vehicles were scheduled to come in because they were going to be in Cleveland area because of storm duty. Uh, those have occurred from time to time, but not in any mass. We, we fortunately haven't had those, those needs. But we are we are there if needed and when called upon. Well, now, uh, going back to COVID, which we just can't seem to shake yet, uh, what does it look like as far as what kind of precautions actual fairgoers are going to have to do? Do you think we'll still be wearing masks outdoors yet? Or are we done with that? I don't think we're done with that, Nick. Uh, we will be doing protocols, as I earlier mentioned. But on top of that, we are hearing... Uh, as early as today, that uh, the COVID restraints are going to be loosening up. You know, right now we're at a 40% capacity of the fairgrounds or of any grandstand, but uh, display or show. We're hearing that those are going to be ratched up uh, to possibly higher than 50% by June 1st. That's unofficial, but we're hearing those very strong words. And we're hopeful that after July 4th, we might be lifted of all regulations uh, that we're currently required to do. We, however, are still going to provide masks and and certain protocols, hand washing stations, other devices, so that people still feel safe coming to the fair from a COVID standpoint. So what you just mentioned, you'll be providing masks. So... When people come in through the gates, if they don't have a mask, they'll be getting one if they want? Yes, we will have masks available. Uh, we will have other uh, sanitation items uh, that we can use throughout the fair. We're going to try to direct traffic so we're not having congested areas. Uh, and I'm talking about people traffic more than anything. Um, we will also uh, not police and demand that people wear. We're going to let people use their best judgment. Uh, we want to advise and provide, but we don't want to be in their face and mandate. So we're welcome everybody, and we'll honor those with or without masks. Um, so it, 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 we're trying to make it as friendly, but also as proactive as possible. Well, I know that everybody is just 
yearning for the times where we can go back to like pre-2020 here and uh, go out, enjoy the summertime, enjoy things like the county fair, and uh, enjoy just being around with people. Hopefully that will come about. But uh, Tim Fowler, thank you so very much. That's the Cuyahoga County Fair, August 10th through 16th of this year. Tim, thank you for joining us. As always, we'll have you on again You're before welcome. the uh, fair. Thank You're you. Thank you so much, Nick. See you at the fair. My pleasure. We'll see you at the fair. And thank you for listening okay. tonight. That's our show for tonight. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great, safe, and healthy week. Good night. In a dream or in my drifting days after the war, I found a tea room north of the Mozambique shore. Worn Persian carpet on the sandwood floor. Row-pointed slippers by the bamboo door. On the wall, a faded picture of a movie queen. Torn from the pages of some ancient magazine. Sleeping parrot, dreaming parrot dreams. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset. Sat and drank my fresh mint tea. With nothing to do until morning. And only my mind for company. The Advocate is sponsored by Nick Phillips.